0: Well hello there Firehouse Church. It's good to get to talk with you today on Sunday. Thanks for letting me join in on your house church. I am doing a reading plan through the book of Matthew with a few pastors in our movement and I read through Matthew 9 in the last week and was just really encouraged in that chapter and God was teaching me some things and so I just wanted to share some of what God taught me through that and talk through this morning. It's kind of a one-off here. We're not going through the book of Matthew or anything, but I was just encouraged by this chapter. Why don't I pray and then I'll just jump in. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for each of these house churches meeting. Just thank you for leading our little church. We thank you for your word. We thank you As we look at Matthew 9, God, we thank you that you heal. God, that you have power, that you care, that you care about us today. And we pray we learn from you. We pray you'd really bless this time. Help us each hear your word, put it into practice, and grow in our faith, grow in our knowledge of your character, uh, and grow in our heart for those around us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust you read through a lot of Matthew 9 leading up to this. One of the things that really struck me in this chapter that we're going to dig in on today is what people believed about Jesus as they approached him really shaped their experience that they have with Jesus. In Matthew 9, there's a whole bunch of people who are encountering Jesus. They have different beliefs. They bring in different experiences. They bring in different hurts and challenges, and Jesus meets them there, but he reacts to them very differently based on their beliefs and their actions and their heart when they come to him. And I was encouraged that we can follow in the example of those that approach in faith, and that can shape how we approach Jesus. And we can also learn by looking at the example of how Jesus interacts with hurting people and the heart he has. And so first, we're just going to look at a number of examples of people approaching Jesus who are looking for healing in this chapter. And so right away in verse 1, it says, Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Blasphemy! This man talks like he is God. Some of the teachers of religious law said among themselves, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why are you saying such evil thoughts? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Take up your mat and go home. Because you are healed. And the man jumped up and went home. And fear thrusts through the crowds. As they saw this happen right before their eyes. They praised God for sending a man with such great authority. So what do we learn from what they believed? Some people brought this paralyzed man before Jesus. One Right off the bat, we see somehow they believed that Jesus would heal their friend. They believed that he was the kind of God that would do that. That he would care and that he would heal them if they carried him in. Second, they believed that even the most severe physical ailment could be healed by Jesus thinking of a paralytic man and having them carry him in on a mat through the crowds right up in front of Jesus looking for healing. They had to have some belief that he could do something about it to go through that kind of um, scene in public. And I look at that, I'm just going to throw it out the question and, and we'll look at a few of these, but Consider that story and think, do we believe that Jesus has that kind of power to heal those around us in their greatest need in their life, even if it's big? I'm going to cruise through a few more and and we'll talk about them. Uh, If you jump to verse 18, it says, As Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt down before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand upon her. Jumping to verse 23, it says, When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he noticed the noisy crowds and heard the funeral music. He said, Go away, for this girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. When the crowd was finally outside, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. This report of the miracle swept through the entire countryside. And so what do we learn about this man's belief? The leader of the synagogue who came on behalf of his daughter. One, this man believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. Even though there was already people in mourning having a funeral. Even though his language, he says, my daughter has just died. He said, but you, you Jesus, you can bring her back to life again. He believed that Jesus had the power to heal, to raise his daughter back to life again. And then Jesus took the girl by the hand, allowing her to stand up immediately, bringing her back and having enough strength to be standing on her feet from being dead, from being at her own funeral. And I'm just struck with, do we believe that Jesus can do the impossible? The man went to Jesus when his daughter was already dead. The other men Took the paralytic on the mat, knowing he was paralyzed, knowing medicine couldn't do anything. Do we believe Jesus can do the impossible? What if our finances don't quite make sense? What if we feel too tired physically to do what he calls us to? What if the mission he sets us on is too great? It says, the people laughed. And our natural reaction is to laugh. The child is dead. Or consider Sarah in Genesis 18, when God said she would have a baby in an advanced age, and records that she laughed at God. Considering her age and considering the impossibility of it, it's so easy for us to be in the crowd laughing. And all too often we have this response of what God might do in our life. I think of the first time we walked into 3300 Tejon as a church and I remember Greg walking in there with Rich and and looking at that building and considering it and we asked him to evaluate it just from from someone with uh, architecture and, and a little bit of project management experience just to think about what it would take to convert that building into a church and it was so dilapidated and so warehouse-like and so dirty and so full of junk the very thought of having a church there was laughable and he laughed maybe um, didn't mean to but that was the natural reaction and he later showed great faith in leading the renovation effort and the reality But the reality was laughable, the finances, the work required, the grime was real, the oil stains, the speed bump, the roll off dumpsters full of trash, you name it, but God worked. And are the mountains so big in our life that our response is is to laugh, our response is to not approach Jesus? Maybe it's a debt bill that's just so high. Maybe it's physical ailments. There's a lot of things that we hold on to, and are unwilling to even bring before Jesus, because our faith is only big enough to laugh. And this man, he was a respected Jewish leader in the synagogue, and it seems like he was risking a lot to kneel before Jesus and ask for help out in public. The Pharisees were there, religious leaders were there. It was in public. And this religious leader came before Jesus and knelt down. Are we willing to look like an outsider or fool to ask for God's help? Are we willing to be embarrassed or persecuted to be counted with God's people or know that people to know we count on Him? Or do we see it as a weakness in our life to pray and kneel like that? He also asked for help after it seemed impossible. She was already dead. The funeral was already happening. He had waited too long to come before Jesus. Now he could only ask for comfort, right? Except he didn't. He said, you could bring her back to life. He believed God for the impossible. And I'm encouraged within that to believe and to try to come in faith for how God could work Not my limited view of how I expect him to work. Which would be just praying for comfort in that situation and not praying that Jesus would bring her back from the dead. Okay, verse 20. We kind of jumped over this, but there's another interaction right in the middle of this. It says, as Jesus and the disciples were going to the official's home, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And Jesus turned around and said to her, Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. A few things I see in this woman. One, she understood that she was unclean and unworthy understood how the Jewish law treated bleeding. She should have probably been outside the camp altogether. But she believed that even touching his cloak could heal her, that Jesus had the power to heal. She believed that even living with that ailment for 12 years Jesus could fix it in an instant. I'm just encouraged to think about, is there anything in our lives that we've lived with for so long that it's hard to even believe that Jesus cares or Jesus would fix it? It was 12 years. And she just humbly touched the fringe of his cloak. A couple other encounters just in this chapter, verse 27. And Jesus left the girls' home. Two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their eyes and said, Because your faith, It will happen. And suddenly they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they spread his fame all over the region. So they believed it was only God's mercy that would bring healing. And they publicly expressed that they believed that Jesus could make them see again by his mercy. Next, verse 32 reads, when they left, some people brought to him a man who couldn't speak because he was possessed by a demon. So Jesus cast out the demon, and instantly the man could talk. The crowds marveled. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. So the man and his friends believed Jesus could bring healing. That Jesus could cast out the demon. And immediately Jesus cast it out and he could speak. And the theme is all of these people humbly came before God and experienced God's healing in their life. And it makes me wonder are there things that we are experiencing that we need to mimic these examples of belief and the care and power of Jesus to heal us, to answer the prayers? to change our lives, to change our inner man. You know, I think back, I think there was a time after our daughter Hazel had died that the doctors were very strongly telling us that we should end our family journey. Medically, everything was pointing to us needing to be done. There was so much risk in having more children. There was so much uncertainty in what had happened And I remember grieving, just thinking of being done with having children at that time and grieving that loss. we kept praying that God would give faith and direction to us that was larger than just what we saw in front of us. And as Jesus was faithful, he gave us faith just to walk ahead and believe him that there was a bigger picture to be painted than strictly what the doctors were saying. And miraculously, he gave us our two sons after that. The worldly logic, the medical advice, the writing on the wall was all pointing a certain direction. But God was faithful to us, doing the miraculous in our life. There was some really tense moments with both the boys during pregnancy and delivery. But I praise God when I go in the boys' room in the morning and think of the journey of faith that God has led us into over the last five years there was another chapter, a chance for God to get the glory. And that's not the story of every medical journey, but it was one where we just saw a real need to have faith in Jesus beyond simply the circumstances in front of us. I suspect we all have things in our life still that if God said he wanted to change, we would laugh. Or we'd be sheepish to even bring it before God or make it public, or let other people know if we are disappointed if God didn't answer. you don't understand it's been a decade. It's been that way since I was a child. It's impossible. The doctors already gave the prognosis. The sin pattern was already forged. The book is finished. But the themes and those that Jesus healed. In all of those instances, the people coming for healing had to believe that he was God who could heal. Why would they risk the ridicule or put themselves in the spotlight? I get the sense these weren't people that were often out in the middle of public and in the spotlights with sickness or deformity or uncleanliness. But they believed Jesus could change things and work the miracle. They also needed to have humility. The leader of the synagogue knelt before Jesus The Pharisees are following Jesus, continually threatening and antagonizing him. And this Jewish leader knelt before Jesus, acknowledging that he had the power of God. That likely didn't go over so hot with the other religious leaders. The woman with the bleeding didn't want eye contact or acknowledgement. She tried to just touch the edge of his garment in secret. She was unclean, separated, judged, and outcast. But she humbly touched his cloak all these people were healed. As we look at this chapter, there's some people that don't necessarily receive that healing. There's two other groups of people I want to highlight that are held in contrast that those who believes and humbly became before Jesus. Their heart and example is worth reviewing as well. And what was different about the Pharisees and the crowds. They didn't experience the same power of God in their lives on that day. The Pharisees were around and interacting with Jesus publicly throughout this chapter. Jesus was out very publicly ministering and healing where there was crowds, where people were seeing him. And this was no doubt creating a stir in public, having these miraculous events take place. I mean, Jesus' power go out. And the Pharisees likely saw another teacher with a crowd that was a threat and drew attention away from them. I imagine normally the Pharisees would have been pursued. They would draw a crowd. People would want to hear their wisdom and learn from them and sit around at their feet. And yet Jesus had the crowds. The people were coming to Jesus for healing. So I can understand a little bit how the Pharisees were responding. In verse 3, when Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins to the paralyzed man, what do they do? They call him a blasphemer. They rightly understood that the forgiveness of sins was only something that God could offer. And that by forgiving sins and saying he had that power, he was claiming to be God. So what do they do? They call out, Blasphemy! This man talks like he is God. So immediately, they call him a blasphemer when he asserted his lordship. Later on, the Pharisees interact again when Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Verse 11 through 13, it says, The Pharisees were indignant. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? They asked his disciples. When he heard this, Jesus replied, Healthy people do not need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, Now go and learn from the meaning of this scripture. I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. For I have come to call sinners, not those who think they are already good enough. They believed that the religious teacher should only sit with the religious godly people. They should be with the Pharisees. They should be with the noble, not with the tax collectors, not with the sinners. And they were critical of Jesus for being with the quote-unquote sinners. Later on, when Jesus sends the demon out of the mute man, what did they say of him? Verse 34, but the Pharisee says, He can cast out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. So they are acknowledging that he sent the demon away, but then asserting that he couldn't have the power of God to do that. First, the Pharisees witnessed the same events as the disciples, as the people coming for healing, the same healing, the same miracles, the same words were spoken by Jesus, but they experienced Jesus differently because they did not believe him and were bitter towards him in their hearts. Aren't there many that discount what God is doing because of these things? They have some bitterness towards God in their heart. This can manifest itself in many ways in speech. Maybe there are folks that argue about creationism versus um, evolution. Some discount Christianity as just another rules-based religion meant to control people. Or they put Jesus in this box of he should have this normal experience. He's in the four walls of the church. It's a cult thing when you follow Jesus. There's so many people to discount what's going on. And Jesus called the Pharisees out on this. The most religious, studied, respected group got the toughest love from Jesus in this chapter, didn't they? And in our world, there's also people that believe there should be a strict code of who can be in God's family, who should be able to be in the church. Maybe it's by race. Maybe it's by gender. Maybe it's by having a cleaned up life. Maybe it's only the baptized can enter. Jesus ruffled feathers because he associated with, and he ate with the sinners, with the people that weren't cleaned up, that were messy, that needed healing. The sick needed the physician. He didn't only eat with the Jews or the rabbis or the religious. He ate with the hated sinners. And to the question of the start, what do these attitudes draw out in their experience with Jesus? Indignance? Opposition? They openly rebuked him? What would they say if they had to describe Jesus that day? It probably wouldn't be positive. He wouldn't seem approachable to them. And they certainly weren't personally experiencing the power of God in their own lives. It's the same Jesus, the same Jesus that was healing that day but he manifested himself and responded differently to the Pharisees based on what they believed about him. In Proverbs 3.34 and James 4.6 say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Same God, the same Jesus, this day. But we see how the same God has two different responses based on how people come to him. It's easy to point the finger and be critical of the Pharisees here, but often we have in our head a real rigid expectation of what an experience of God should look like, a rigid box of who should experience it. And are we ready to extend God's grace to those far from God, those that look different, to those that have sin in their life and need God's healing? Are we ready to accept that Jesus might work drastically different than we've experienced in our own life? Even across ministries, are we ready to accept that Jesus could work very different in the church down the road from us and be the same God? And will we accept if God wanted to do something new among us that wasn't conventional or accepted in the mainstream? Or do we have a notion in our head of what it means to follow Jesus as an American Christian so we can be comfortable and not occur opposition. The last group of people I want to call out in this chapter is the crowds. They're mentioned a few times that there was crowds forming, watching these miraculous events, hearing the interactions. The crowds of people are called out a number of times. One, it indicates the public nature of these interactions. It brings to color why the religious leaders were following around in opposition because there was crowds and they were following Jesus and they were in close proximity. And how do the crowds interact with Jesus and vice versa in this chapter? I spoke earlier, verse 24, when Jesus arrives at the religious leader's house, there was funeral music and the crowds, what did they do? They laughed at Jesus when he said he would heal the girl. His power was so far out of what they expected and experienced that they laughed. I also want to look at verse 36, because this really struck me. It says of Jesus, he felt great pity for the crowds that came, because their problems were so great that they didn't know where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. This is that third group. They were stuck in their sins. Not unlike the Pharisees. Their problems were so great, it says, and they didn't know where to go for help. They didn't know how to change. They didn't know how to get better. There was nobody else that could offer true healing. Boy, do we see this. There's recovery groups, government programs. Everybody has a circle of friends. But do those around us really know where to go for help? Do they have somebody to call when times are hard, when they have marriage problems, when they have a loved one die, when they lose their job? Do they know where to go for help? The scripture says they were like sheep without a shepherd. People are vulnerable without God. They don't know where to go. They're aimless. They're vulnerable to attack. They're vulnerable to going after material things, They're prone to substance abuse. That's what my life was like. I didn't know where to go. And this is the reality around us. We know many people around us that are not unlike the crowds in Matthew 9. They may laugh at God like the crowd outside of the synagogue ruler's home. They may be hostile. They may be callous. But the reality is they have great hurts and they don't know where to go for help. And Jesus models how to relate to people who don't know where to go for help. It says he felt great pity for the crowds. Why? Because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. What a model from our Lord. It's so easy for us to become judgmental. We all know people hurting and sin around us. You might know somebody that's hurting because they're addicted to alcohol or they're really struggling with finances or solitude during COVID, I must admit, it's so easy to sit in the judge's chair and simply assess why the hurt is there in their life. They've rejected God. They used illegal substances. They trusted money. They were out gambling. They cheated on their wife. And we're conditioned to judge and to separate from people when they go through hard times. Jesus sets the bar here. The scripture says he had great pity. Many translations render this, that he felt compassion. The message translation says that his heart broke. Jesus looked at people far from God in great pain, up to their neck and sinned, and he had a broken heart of compassion. And that heart moved him to action. He didn't judge their sins on the spot. He didn't give a guilt trip. He didn't separate himself from the sinners And sit only with the religious leaders? No. He was criticized for eating with the tax collectors. For for being with those that were sick and needed a physician. Jesus felt compassion for the hurting. And was moved to action. And do you know what he did in that very next verse? Verse 37. The scripture reads, He said to the disciples, The harvest is so great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send out more workers for his fields. And then in chapter 10, he gives the disciples authority. He sends them out on the mission to reach the lost sheep of Israel. He sent the disciples out to minister. He was moved to heal many people in this chapter. How do you respond to those around us that don't know where to go for help and are stuck in their sin? Are you moved to judgment? or compassion for the lost around you. Jesus modeled having compassion for the hurting, being moved to action, being moved to prayer. And he sent us to go and to minister because there are crowds of hurting people in the world that don't know where to go for help. The compassion led to action, that he sent the disciples, that he mobilized to go minister and care for God's lost sheep as he would refer to the people of Israel in Matthew 10. And again, this relates back to the start of Matthew 9. Do we believe that Jesus has the power to heal? Do we believe that Jesus cares? And do we believe enough to take action and to join Jesus on this mission? What would it mean to be moved to compassion for the crowds around us? How would we spend our money? How would we spend our time? How would we evangelize differently? How would we pray differently? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your example in your heart. In Matthew 9, God, we thank you that you healed the blind and the mute and those bleeding and hurting. God, your power went out. You cared. And you have the power to forgive sins, to heal ailments. God, help us approach you and believe you have that kind of power and care for us today. And I'm also struck by your heart for the lost sheep. God, that you were moved to compassion, that you mobilized your church to go reach the lost sheep of Israel. I pray you would use us on that mission. I pray you would touch our heart, with that heart of care and compassion rather than a heart of judgment towards those around us that are hurting, and you'd use us to minister and care for those around us who you need to reach with your gospel and who you are actively reaching out to and changing their lives. I pray you bless the discussions in House Church today. Bless all these times together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.